0: I think we have to take seriously when Jesus is preaching in Luke, when he's talking about the oppressed, um, he's talking about real oppression. Um, It isn't just spiritual oppression. You can't just read in of a spiritualized nature of it. I think um, the reality is Jesus knew he was born in a time of of Roman power, empire. Um, He knew what oppression looked like He knew what that was about. Um, and so I think as Christians, if we're following the gospel, the gospel has to include. It, it isn't as though that first part isn't true. It is. but It's incomplete. If it leaves the marginalized and the oppressed exactly where they were, but just with a, you know, a tract in their hand, <laughs> That you know someday it'll get better. And it leaves us, who might be privileged, without having to account for that in any way. So I think the gospel isn't just individualized. It is personal but it makes a collective claim about our collective experience, the coming nature of the kingdom
1: of God. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages and stages, bienvenue welcome to episode 49 of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. I'm joined today by none other than Dr. Andrew Whitehead. Andrew is a professor of sociology at Indiana University slash Purdue University in Indiana State. Uh, He is also uh, one of the, I mean, not just arguably, but probably inarguably, one of the leading uh, academics publishing right now on the topic of Christian nationalism. A couple years ago, he Put out a book co-written with Sam Perry called *Taking America Back for God*. Uh, when this kind of conversation was reaching near its peak, and he's just about to release a new book, which is kind of what we mostly talk about today, uh, coming out in August, and that is called *American Idolatry*. Now. Uh, some of you who are listening are in America, some of you who are listening are not, and you'll know that I'm not. We talk about this a lot in the conversation. Um, so why would I care? Well, we also will talk about that in the conversation, but the bottom line is, is anybody and anyone, uh, really should be interested, at, at least not, not in or inordinately interested, not immoderately interested, but should be having an eye on how this conversation evolves. Even if you're not somebody who really considers yourself a Christian, um, but I would dare say, especially if you are, I uh, would get into a lot of things in this conversation. We also talk about music, which is always exciting for me. So uh, without any further ado, a little bit less preamble and a little bit more conversation from Andrew Whitehead. We've hardly spoken, uh, but we do yeah. have some, some friends in common, uh, and so that's kind of partially how I got uh, pointed your way, and, and oh, may- yeah. maybe partially why you also said, "Sure, I'll talk to this random Canadian who I don't know at all."
0: Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. So uh, I'm really appreciating your time today, uh, for sure. Yeah, sharing. totally. Um, so I was uh, you, I was able to get the opening chapter of your uh, soon to be coming out book, American Idolatry. And when is that? When is that book aimed for release?
0: Uh, it releases August 15th. August 15th. Exciting.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the first chapter is available online for anybody uh, mm-hmm. via Brazos Press. And so I was able to kind of go through that. And it lays out things, I think, pretty well. You you get the gist. Now, you don't get the argument because the book is the argument. That's kind of how it, how it works, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, right away, to kind of just as an on-ramp into it a little bit, it seems as though you you mentioned kind of contemporary Christian well, I don't know if you want to call it contemporary Christian music. You mentioned music as a, a, a bit of a gateway for you in some respects to some of these, some of the things that you later ended up on kind of unpacking. So what, yeah, what I, was that, what was that music for you that kind of lit lit your fire?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So as a, uh, you know, kind of junior high, but really in high school, I was very involved in the, the local church, a local church youth group, um, mm-hmm. large white evangelical mega church. And yeah, music was in, you know, the middle of the cornfields of Indiana, Um, music was our one thing to kind of connect us to the outside world and to give us something to do. Um, There just wasn't much happening around. Um, And so, you know, the contemporary Christian music was, was really big, but it was kind of really the, you know, punk and ska wave, right, of like the 90s and early 2000s within Christian music. So, we were constantly trying to get to shows and, you know, in the early days of the internet, you know, trying to find information on band is just so wild to think of now what it would be like <laughs> to follow a band compared to what we did, you know, around the two thousands. Um, sure. but yeah, so five iron frenzy and MXPX and Goaty hook. And I could keep trying to list the names to, to really show my street cred, but, um, <laughs> but those were some of the big bands, right. That we really enjoyed and, um, that were yeah formative in those years.
1: Uh, that is a huge. Uh, uh, it's a huge touchpoint for me because I think I learned the word uh, uh, bow, to, "bow to the flagism," which is not really a word, but that was that was an MXPX mm. uh, song, legalistic, idealistic, <laughs> high class and capitalistic. I remember. Da-da-da-da-da. I remember that song really, really yeah. well. But you, you mentioned yeah. Reese Roper, Reese Roper in particular. Mm. So, and I, I'm yeah. I feel like I know the song. Uh, Cause the, yeah, the lyrics were West yeah. <laughs> Bust" and God we trust. Right. And I, I remember, yeah. remember hearing that song and uh, yeah, there's just something about that kind of um, what's interesting though, is that those were songs for all intents and purposes kind of released by people who themselves were products of the evangelical church. So it was kind of like mm-hmm. people, it was like an internal uh, inter- internal dialogue, right? Like uh, I mean, certainly yeah. some people listen to MXPX. I mean, obviously they, they, they kind of jumped the, jumped the boat and ended up kind of playing warp tours like that. But a lot of these bands were just kind of like Christians talking to Christians. And so you Mm -hmm. kind of, you took it a little bit differently. So, so something in that kind of fired up for you and, 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 and you kind of started wondering, I wonder what they're talking about or what they're seeing that maybe, maybe I'm not seeing. Is that right?
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I think so. I think it was, you know, it's the big thing for me to underscore even with this book, but what I'm writing about and, and you know, and other stuff too, is the the reality of the journey, right? That there are all these little points in the journey um, that, looking back, you can kind of start to make sense of it, which we all do, right? To kind of understand why we're why we are where we are. Um, but in the moment, I I don't know that it was at the forefront of my mind. But just really liking the music, and then starting to look at the words and think about it, and really, it wasn't until later when I started to realize that. Or wonder too, like how much of of this music, or even those lyrics, like on the first song of the first Five Iron Frenzy album, where they're talking about, um, you know, Native American genocide, you know, how much of it got in there, and I didn't realize it at first when I'm listening to it. But um, yeah, it really does kind of form you um, as you look back to at least be pondering things that, as a um, young, you know, Protestant, Christian male in the Midwest I there weren't a lot of opportunities for me to to be thinking about those things um, right. and so this brought it to the forefront I think that's really important and I think it underscores too another thing in the book that's important to me with with what I wrote about but then too in my own journey is you know listening to those voices of those um, who have had very different experiences and trusting them when they're telling me hey this Feels different. This looks different from where I am. You know how you experienced it is true, and I've you know experienced things, and those things are real and true. But it doesn't mean it's the same for everybody, and so um, that's another part that's important to me. And yeah, I think music generally has is so powerful in the way that it can do that. Right, right. art and um, music expressing those different places that we stand, but then trusting each other too to. Um, yeah, that we're telling the truth. And then, well, what does that mean for me from where I am? So um, I think in kind of the taking a big step back and looking at it, that's kind of the reality of that that I see happening to me and I know to others as well. Right. Yeah.
1: Uh, we'll take a look at the layout of the book if you're comfortable with that. But you're, you're also, I mean, this is not your first rodeo or your first book. Um, but it, mm. if, I, if I understand it correctly, you, you do kind of open up from a personal perspective a little bit more in this book mm-hmm. than maybe you have in the past. Mm-hmm. So, um, your yeah. story, your story kind of becomes part of the book in some respects. Uh, so it'd be interesting to hear some of that story and also maybe, maybe why you now feel like with this particular content, it's beneficial or maybe even important to kind of have your story be
0: a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this is my, my second book. Um, and so my first book I wrote was Samuel Perry, a good friend and colleague, um, taking America back for God. And this was, um, for both of us as sociologists, um, basically putting together a lot of the work that we've been doing for a number of years in, in um, journal um, outlets, right? So peer-reviewed articles for, since we're both academics, that's where you have to publish if you're going to keep your job and, and move towards tenure and all those things that nobody outside of academia knows or cares about. But, um, you know, we were writing these papers and we, we were seeing that Christian nationalism as we were developing what that was and how it's defined. Um, and then empirically, so with data, what it's connected to helping us understand how to define this this phenomenon in American American political and religious landscape. We're um, like, you know, there's, there's a larger argument to be made here. And so that really was what um, Taking America Back for God was. So we wrote it towards a non-academic audience, um, but we do, Um, bring in a lot of the data to show, you know, through bar graphs, essentially what Christian nationalism is and what it's connected to, how it helps us understand a lot of the polarization in American society, both politically, but socially, um, who is and who isn't American. Um, And so we kind of lay that argument out. Um, But then, you know, with that book coming out and kind of meeting the moment as it was with a lot of what's been happening in, in U S um, society and politics. Um, there was an opportunity with Brazos um, to write to a more uh, directed audience, fellow Christians. So I'm a Christian and person of faith. And so this would be a, a book that kind of steps or in really the way that I see it, is it kind of straddles those two um, areas of my life. Whereas a, you know, a person with religious beliefs, you know, what this journey has been like for me, but then also as an academic with an expertise in this area, how that is informed and how both inform each other, Hmm. kind of telling that. So it's not like a memoir or anything, but I do bring in parts of my journey or, um, aspects of, of my own kind of experience, um, to help Personalize or at least offer myself as an example of somebody who is, you know, experiencing all that we see happening around us and who grew up um, in this, you know, in within the Christian American Christian church and still identifies as a Christian, what it means. So, um, yeah, doing that throughout the book, I think, is important. Um, and so it is, it is a step afield from just the straight, you know, academic work. Um, not that academic work, people don't come with their their own viewpoints right and, and ways of seeing the world but this is a little more explicit in that sense
1: yeah i mean to uh, uh, kind of dip back into the music imagery again like when we were grow- I'm, i won't ask you your age but i'm i'm, for- I'm 41 i'm guessing we're we're
0: close i'm 40 <laughs> oh there yeah, yeah right on yeah. good stuff
1: so growing yeah. up uh you know even up in here in canada it was the same as the states like you would you would go to like a christian bookstore or whatever ironically it would be the number one place you'd go to to buy music so you'd go there and that's where you'd buy that's where you'd buy these albums or whatever uh you know pre-napster uh and so uh there was something about you picking up one of these albums at this store it meant that you knew that somewhere somewhere along the the line it had been vetted as though these people are christians right like so it's like like so i'm wondering so i'm wondering if that's part of the (laughs) Yeah, part of the thing that you're you're, so if it comes out with brazos yeah we're like andrew andrew whitehead is a christian right like that's kind of like it's it's kind of comes um part and parcel of what happens when you go through a certain publisher and then when you come out and say it multiple times in the book right so like it's you're really kind of signposting that as a as an evidence Mm -hmm. marker and uh yeah that's important i guess because that gives you the opportunity to have kind of what we described earlier as an internal dialogue but there's tension there because you are trying to as you said, straddle the fence in some respects, and you're kind of trying to carry two different lenses maybe, I guess, as you, you talk. You're, you are trying to have the scientific, objective, sociological lens to the degree that that's possible. With the Christian lens, which is not objective, right? Like Christianity is an inherently subjective lens uh all different mm-hmm. kinds of subject subjectivities or whatever so one of the questions that i had even maybe before we dive right into the kind of the content of the book is obviously you've had to think this through a lot and, and wrestle with this and probably this book brought it to the fore all the more um how do you kind of maintain the relationship between these these different identities of yours
0: yeah it's a great question and, and you're right this book Um, really does make more of a normative argument, right? Which um, is this idea of with my own personal faith and journey um, and then informed by all the empirical work that I've done and academic work, you know, making a statement about what Christian nationalism is and and what it means to American Christians like me, but then broadly, you know, Christianity. Um, And so, you know, as far as managing, you know, two different identities or different parts of our identity or how those things intersect. I think the biggest thing um, for me is, is kind of authenticity with that struggle, um, with the tension, um, realizing that, uh, you know, and maybe, too, this is really informed by the, the sociological viewpoint that I find um, profound, which, you know, devote my life to the study of it, but, you know, that um, we're all, in a sense, subjective We're all bringing our own personal histories and baggage and experiences to the discussion. But I think what's so powerful about social science especially is that we at least establish some rules and methodologies for collecting those voices and experiences um, to get a better picture of the diversity of the human experience. Um, In in recognizing that I grew up in northern Indiana in a very particular time and place and you know, I didn't control where I was born, you know, just by, you know, accident of history, here I am. Um, but for me, I guess it's just been so much more, I think it is a, a much more profound and encouraging experience to be able to, to listen to voices of those that have had different experiences of mine. And I think that has just informed it. And so with, you know, the sociology, and social science that I do, I think it it allows me to bring those in and, and I enjoy that. And, and that informs then how I see the world and want to move in the world and exist in the world and and how I want to hope in the world, right? Um, I think for me, one of the big kind of closing themes of this book is, you know, as Christians, the, the reality and, and the practice of hope and how important that is um, in the face of challenges and you know large large issues that we're all facing together we have to face them together but but work towards it together yeah
1: yeah so i mean i i think i've already mentioned though uh, i'm i'm a canadian and so it's it's very clear like uh, we're talking about american uh christian nationalism but you also alluded even that in that answer there that there are um transferable kind of uh, considerations, mm-hmm. I guess. And so one of the things that I mm-hmm. kind of mentioned to you in advance, where we we we're kind of chatting back and forth is I think the one thing that we see up here is, um, uh, I don't remember who coined the term of like kind of mega identities or identity stacking, uh, but it's just the idea mm-hmm. that we have these kind of various. So if I, if I know that you prefer target over Walmart, then I can probably also tell you a number of other right. things, uh, things about you, right? Because we just kind of had these multiple things that have kind of become in, fused together uh it's obviously not yeah. it's statistical so it's not you know with 100 accuracy but um the bottom line is if you're listening to this and you're in canada or you're listening to this and you're anywhere else and you're like why why would i care about a conversation about american christian nationalism uh well two reasons one because there are transferable kind of principles at play and two uh if you happen to have anything to do with christianity uh America is not just the number one exporter of kind of Hollywood cultural things, but also got a lot of what we believe yeah. about Protestant Christianity, right? So there, there is this yeah. sort of like a, a major uh, kind of cultural influence on, on the rest of the world. So the book yeah. uh, is laid out in a great way. Uh, again, I haven't had a chance to read it all yet, but I'm looking forward to it because it looks like you kind of open up with a bit of a, a kind of lay of the land. And then you give us a definition mm. essentially what is Christian nationalism, which you know in a moment I'm going to ask you about. But then you move on and you go and you kind of work through, let's see, one, two, three, four, five different kind of like uh, what we might even consider Jesus's greatest hits in terms of his teachings. And it looks Hmm. as though, if I had to guess, uh, what you're doing is kind of pointing out how, um, in your estimation, uh, white American Christian nationalism kind of takes these sayings and turns them on their head in a, in a negative way, right? With with mm. kind of the idea of what idolatry does, right? So if idolatry takes what is the actual concept of God and then makes it something finite or something twisted. Um, so then mm. you kind of give us how, how these particular ways of Jesus are not only not being lived out by certain subgroups of people, but you would probably go so far as to say that the, the way that they even could be lived out is minimized and hampered by the by certain groups and how they're trying to organize um so maybe you can walk us through maybe maybe just you know have to walk us through but maybe give us one or two highlights of of kind of your your thinking on that but also again you probably have to do this all the time It's probably annoying but uh in your the definition has to roll in some respects because if we don't know what it is we can't talk about it what is christian nationalism
0: yeah well from the table of contents in the first chapter you you've got a good handle on what we're doing here in this book (laughs) that's great um, yeah, so I look forward to when you can read it all. But but yeah, I think that's a great overview and what I'm what I'm trying to go for here. Um, so let me define Christian nationalism and then to, you know, how that plays a role and what I'm thinking about in this book and, and the way that the, the book structure lays out. Um, so, you know, we come to this and I say we because you know, with Sam Perry and other colleagues, this has been a collective effort, with social scientists defining what this is. So I don't wanna make it seem as though I'm the, the only voice here, the one that did it. Um, but we identify and, and think about Christian nationalism as a cultural framework. So when we're talking about cultural frameworks, um, these are collections of, of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, value systems that idealize and advocate for a very particular expression of Christianity to be fused closely with American civic life. Um, and so I want to be you know really focused on the particular expression of Christianity, because again, some folks will talk about Christian nationalism and think any sort of religion in public life, that that's Christian nationalism. And that isn't what it is. And that's not what any social scientists who's, who's doing this work is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Christian nationalism, this particular expression, it doesn't necessarily refer to orthodox, historic Christian theological beliefs, mm-hmm. um, but more to a conservative, um, ethno-cultural and political orientation of Christianity uh, that really is a almost a political theology. Um, so our research on Christian nationalism, we come to this definition Um, because we find that over and over there are a number of different elements that are identified with Christian nationalism. So the first is a moral traditionalism, with this idea that society should be um, arranged hierarchically. So there are folks at the top, folks in the middle, and folks at the bottom. Um, And usually these revolve around patriarchy or heterosexism, gender and sexuality. The second is authoritarian, uh, a comfort with authoritarian social control. So the world is viewed as chaotic and sometimes we need strong rules and we need strong rulers to come in and enforce order through the threat of violence or through violence um, to ensure that again, society is arranged hierarchically as it should be. So through violence or militarism. Uh, The third element we find over and over um, is that uh, Christian nationalism contains um, strong and strict ethno-racial boundaries around national identity and membership. Um, who belongs to the civic uh, body? Um, who um, belongs socially? Who can take part and in, in benefit from civil society, not in just a few ways, but in every way? Um, and so, again, these fall along um, ethnic and racial lines. And then finally, we find, too, that a... a strong element of, of of Christian nationalism is a populist impulse um, that really kind of underscores feelings of victimization, persecution, uh, conspiratorial thinking, suspicion towards institutions or quote-unquote elites, um, insiders. So this can include people like me, academics. Um, it can include politicians, um, mainstream media. Um, so again, this questioning of of those, those institutions and people. And so when we're talking about Christian nationalism, again, it's this idea that this particular expression of Christianity should be central to American civic life, to how we identify who is and who is an American, who has access to American society and the benefits of being Amer- American. And that the government um, not only should be organized according to this, but should actively um, embrace it and defend it as an organizing structure for American society. So that is where we come to with Christian nationalism, what it is, what the elements are, um, and how we define it. And so it isn't just any sort of religion in the public sphere, but again, a particular expression of it.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, right in there, I mean, you can can take the word America out of there, and I think you can easily, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to have different expressions in Norway and in France than yeah. it will in Canada mm-hmm. but nonetheless you can kind of understand how it's most mostly transferable even though it's going to be uh, I hate to use the word incarnated but it will hit uh, actual matter and actual people differently because even though people are universal yeah. the cultures in which these things manifest themselves will make the it make it like unique i guess in each, each area but one yeah, one thing yeah. that strikes me as interesting is that you're mentioning that both a propensity towards hierarchy and the propensity towards populism coexist yeah. within this. And so I, I'm, I'm, I, su- I guess I struggle to understand uh, how those things play well together. Cause I mean, somebody else that I follow regularly points out all the time that hierarchy happens. So like there kind of is no way to have a, an actual flat, uh, flat expression of, of humanity. Uh, everyone that like people mm-hmm. have just different, different roles and uh, how they, in how they operate. So like ontologically, people are better than others, but just like you, you have a boss, and that's how that that's how that works, right? So so structures <laughs> right. structures occur. Um, uh, so it's it's just funny to think that then kind of like they would be wanting that, but then would it sort of in other ways be kind of anemic in, in their their appetite for who I guess happens to be above them in the hierarchy.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, just well, I think an who but, and yeah. yeah, totally no who and then also the expression that that takes right what it looks like so there's differences between you know bureaucracies and institutions um that could be a little more nebulous or hard to make sense of or understand exactly how this works or how i benefit from it or not Mm -hmm. versus you know a person that i look to and this is the leader and we look to this person and so there could be Ah. popular support for one but not the other and so i think And two, with American politics, religion, and maybe this is just a more general statement, we have to get used to um, tension or what seems like, shouldn't this cause cognitive dissonance? But then it doesn't. <laughs> and that's just a reality. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, if somebody analyzed my operate, life for very long, right? yeah,
1: they'd see the same thing for me for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, chapter, yeah, yeah. I mean, chapter three, you've got right away, like, uh, turn the other cheek. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can just use even just that one example of the teachings of Jesus and how mm-hmm. that becomes... Uh, fodder essentially for for how you work through this book
0: yeah yeah definitely no happy to um yeah so the after defining christian nationalism and laying out you know what what it is what it means how we measure it um i turn to what i call three and these aren't the only three but the main three that i focus on in this book um idols of christian nationalism and Mm -hmm. so identify those as power fear and violence and so, turn the other cheek is the chapter where we're, where I'm looking at power as an idol of Christian nationalism. And I think it is the central idol. So it um, really is kind of the, you know, the key that unlocks much of what we see happening, not only in American politics, but that intersection of of Christianity in the U.S. Um, and this particular expression um, that we see within Christian nationalism. It is about power. Um, and fear and violence really are connected to that because the idol of fear is fear of losing um, access to power, or at least um, the the level of privilege um, that many American Christians have had over the centuries with access to power. And then violence comes from when we um, are are fearful of losing um, what we you know idolize, and when we create these. Know, strict boundaries around who is in and who is out, and we create the other, right, that we need to be afraid of. Violence is a natural result. And so I think that, again, is another idol that plays off of, of the idol of power. And so, yeah, with turning the other cheek, this idea of Christians um, willfully abdicating what might be perhaps power that they could use in a situation um, to benefit themselves or to benefit some other group that they see as in need, Um, but really what I'm focusing on in the book is, um, self-interested power. So power that merely serves us in the in-group. And again, it can be difficult to see what that is because when we're a part of the in-group and all we're talking to is each other, we think, right, that we're benefiting everyone. But when we hear voices from those on the outside saying, hey, hey, wait a second, like, I, I don't, I'm not a part of this discussion or I don't see what you're not seeing is how this harms me. Um, then you know, it takes us out of this kind of in-group thinking of we have to do this to defend ourselves. And so um, with turning the other cheek, it's it's more about not that we lay aside um, any execution of power, um, but that we are really careful about, is it just self-interested power? Mm-hmm. So if we look at the civil rights movement in U.S. history um, – any movement like that social movement or political movement, they were exercising power in the sense that um, the civil rights act that was passed is a, you know, that's coercive, right? It's mandating that everybody has access to democracy almost really for the first time in U S history. We're actually a pretty young democracy. So that is power being exercised. So it's not as though Christians abdicate power, Mm. but that we have to be really careful. Is it self-interested power? Is it just to benefit us And how do we know well we have to go to those on the margins and so as a white protestant male um i have not been marginalized in my life now i've had barriers i've had to work hard to get where i am it's not saying that but my skin color and my gender it hasn't made it harder for me -hmm. Uh, but i would never see that right doors were open for me that i didn't realize were open but when i talk to groups and people and listen to voices outside of that experience i see oh wow Right? That was a door that was open that I didn't realize. And so now it's about we exercise power, but it's power in relationship to those that are marginalized. How can we leverage our privilege to ensure that everyone has access, equal access as much as can be mm-hmm. the benefits of society, the benefits of what it means to be an American? And, and I think in that sense, kind of even to make a broader statement, um, I think that's real patriotism. Right? Like that's loving your country is wanting everyone to have access to the benefits of of being here and living here. And so um, I guess, you know, that's kind of a longer answer, but in Mm. that chapter, that's the themes that I'm exploring and then building from there with fear and violence. Right. That's really helpful.
1: Uh, So again, with very limited access to the book, I did write down a couple of quotes. One is on on page 13, and I think it speaks to this a little bit where you say, once we see the gospel, Uh, as good news for the present uh, I guess that's in lieu of merely thinking of the gospel as being something that's you know a a free ticket for the afterlife but once we see the gospel as good news for the present uh, we can begin to take the evidence that social science hands us about Christian nationalism and recognize uh, this ideology as limiting the work Jesus claimed that he came to do and then commanded us to do likewise. So I, I hear you kind of saying in that that there's uh if you're if you're if you're not looking to in some respects affect society for the good then you're kind of not necessarily following through on the teachings of jesus um which is a that is a a constant uh again from somebody who's kind of like looking on the outside we certainly experience this dialogue in canada but it seems like it's a constant dialogue in the u.s so um my i don't i don't Uh, Twitter troll you so I have no idea whether anybody says these words but would it be surprised if somebody said you sound like a social justice warrior or that was the terminology that probably would have been thrown around in the not so recent past somebody who uh, is trading in 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 air quotes I guess trading in the gospel uh, for some sort of a an earthly uh kind of short-term gap. So do you, I mean, first of all, have you seen these kinds of claims before? Am I talking crazy? Uh, And if not, uh, and if you have, how do you think it through, I guess, in terms of like, um, what we've often been told is that, you know, even if you can do something to alleviate present suffering, it's not ultimately what the church is there to do. And I'll even bring in kind of a secondary Uh, quote that you put down here, Um, this is on page 19, a key insight from uh, the field of sociology is that focusing solely on changing individual hearts and minds will only perpetuate the current situation. I think you kind of alluded to that in some respects with the civil rights uh, movement where Mm -hmm. it was, hey, it's not enough to just try to focus on the individual. Something systemic needs to be done. But mm-hmm. a lot of times we're told. I don't think this is exclusively evangelicalism. I think maybe you'd hear Protestants, maybe you'd hear Catholics, maybe you'd hear Orthodox say the same mm-hmm. thing. I'm not sure. Which is that our job is not to remake society, but to remake, to help kind of remake people, so individual hearts or whatever, right? So how do you mm-hmm. how do you help uh, kind of speak to that tension that individual Christians might mm-hmm. be might be hearing? I guess in that.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a good question, and and this is going to be something too that is different about this book because I, if in the title or the subtitle, right, how it betrays the Christian nationalism betrays the gospel. Well, <laughs> I'm going to have to define gospel, right? Sure, right. And and that's that's going to place folks. Sadly, it'll probably for some it'll be less of a conversation and more of just drawing lines. But um, you know, there's a number of things, and and some of it too, I think. I do deal with in the book, um, but a number of things that stand out to me is um, and and what I do in in that upcoming chapter or even in the chapter that you read too, right, is quoting Jesus' first public message mm-hmm. um, in Luke four, where he shares quoting from Isaiah, um, "The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, And so I think this is a theme throughout Jesus' life and ministry, but I think, too, as we look at um, God's story as he interacts with humanity throughout the Christian scriptures, um, is that a central part of that story, what I think is the good news in the gospel, is um, God locating... Um, with the marginalized, with those on the outskirts of society. Um, So James Cone, he uh, talks about the the entirety of the gospel. So Jesus' life, death, teachings um, bring to life God's protest against the exploitation of the weak by the strong. And so Jesus, in becoming human, um, is setting aside all the power and glory that he had to marg- be be marginalized like humanity to, to place himself embodied presence with us, mm-hmm. um, and that you know stands opposed to um, a lot of the power of empire, which again is to control. Um, and so Jesus uh, came. And so when I think of the gospel, and I think of preaching the gospel, um, one exercise that I you know, do with myself, but then too, I kind of encourage others to do is to think, you know, how far back in history could I go, um, or to which groups could I go? And if I'm preaching a gospel of that, you know, we grew up on, or I grew up on, that is, and it isn't as though this isn't true. I think this is part of the gospel is, um, you know, we're separated by sin from God. Jesus came um, to, you know, to rework that relationship, to, to save us, to rescue us from that, put your faith in Jesus, and now you're in right relationship with God. And in the end, um, you know, you will spend eternity with God, right? So we would see that, and that is a part of it. But I think it's incomplete because you could take that gospel message and you could go back to, um, you know, in a, a, a black American enslaved in the South um, in the 1850s, and you could preach that exact same gospel to them, would they receive it as good news if had nothing to say about their embodied reality, right? They could put their faith in Jesus and know that someday they would go to heaven. But that doesn't sound like good news to me if it leaves them in chains. Um, And so I think we have to take seriously when Jesus is preaching in Luke, when he's talking about the oppressed, um, he's talking about real oppression. Um, it isn't just spiritual oppression. We can't just read in kind of a spiritualized nature of it. Mm-hmm. I think um, the reality is Jesus knew he you know, was born in a time of, of Roman power, empire. Um, he knew what oppression looked like. He knew mm-hmm. what that was about. Um, and so I think as Christians, if we're following the gospel, the gospel has to include. It, it isn't as though that first part isn't true. It is. But it's incomplete if it leaves the marginalized and the oppressed exactly where they were but just with a you know a tract in their hand <laughs> that yeah. you know someday it'll get better and it leaves us who might be privileged without having to account for that in any way. So I think again um, the gospel isn't just individualized it is personal um, but it makes a collective claim about our collective experience, the coming nature of the kingdom of God. Um, And that those that are being crushed on the margins, um, Mm -hmm. that Christians are to be about siding with them and leveraging our privilege in to their benefit. Um, So later in the book, I I interview um, uh, a young woman who started up a a nonprofit um, in a a city in Indiana that helps connect um, incoming refugees with the community. Because they come here and they have no connections, and so helping them get connected. Um, And and a quote that she has that just it's seared into my mind is no friendship is apolitical. So we can't be friends. We can't side with those um, those that are marginalized and and not have something to say about their experience, Um, Mm -hmm. because they don't really get a choice to be apolitical, right? Because they're embodied. presence places them on the outside. And so when we hear their stories, and I share some of the stories um, in the book, um, it, it pushes us, I think, and it should push us as Christians to listen to those stories and then to think, um, if I'm going to be about the work of Jesus and what he said, I think it necessarily means we have to be listening and siding with those. And that's going to place us um, in opposition to yeah, social structures and power structures. It isn't just the individualized spiritualized nature, I think in that way that can leave in place those things that do oppress our neighbors. And I think we need to be aware of what those things are and, and do what we can to oppose those.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if part of the challenges is, is that I mean, this is, I, I don't have the data, this is kind of anecdotal, but the impression that we sometimes mm. are given or have is that when people lean hard in that ladder, uh, the way that you just described it, that embodied, like actually seeking what, like where they're living, where they hurt, mm. you know, that you mentioned 1850s. And if you could go back and fix that problem, uh, when people seem to lean hard on that side of the, the uh, teeter-totter, uh, it seems like oftentimes when they're successful in it, it's as though they, they have no longer cared very much about the other side of the teeter-totter. So we're no longer talking a lot about eternity. We're no longer talking a lot about salvation. We're no longer talking a lot about the things that seem to be very, very important to the evangelical church. Mm. Uh, so, like, I, I do believe that there, you're able to hold those things together. I think they're probably two sides of a coin, and yet it just seems like in practice, so often we're only playing heads or tails, uh, so we're only mm. looking at the long the long game, or we're only looking at the short game, uh, and so I don't know if that's a fear that kind of drives a lot of these things. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna we only have a few minutes left, but I'm gonna crack open a, a can of worms, and you can shut it down. Okay, uh, by, by, if you if you'd like to, I can edit as well. I have the ability to edit. Uh, but there's yeah, like, yeah. there's two things that to me seem probably the most problematic for. How mm. so some of this data has been presented, which is that, and this could be a misreading, so you can correct me or you can just elucidate and say, no, you're right, but here's why. Most of the things that you go through and itemize as being kind of um, key holdings of people who are defined as white American Christian nationalists, I can kind of get behind and say, I can see how's that how that is kind of just like full stop problematic, and mm. yet from my vantage point, it seems like a number of times we've brought up issues of kind of human sexuality and issues of abortion. So those have kind of come up as though, uh, the people that you're defining as these nationalists hold to the viewpoint that things, I mean, those, and those shouldn't be aggregated. So they have different approaches, but they're both on the Mm -hmm. table. We'll look at abortion, for example, is that as though, uh, you released a few days ago, a tweet from Pew research, uh, saying how, uh, uh, evangelicals hold it uh, apparently very, very high that abortion in most mm-hmm. cases should be illegal, whereas the majority of the population in America does not hold that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And so, you having cited earlier kind of this complicated mm-hmm. past with civil rights, civic, civic, right? Civil rights, yeah. Uh, civil and civic, let's get confused. About uh, how it's like sometimes force, be that actual force or political force. Right. can be employed in a way that seems to be for the greater good what are we to do with a? a and we'll forget about the homosexuality for right now but let's just look at abortion what are we to do with people who hold the viewpoint that this is entirely important to kind of to human lives and that mm-hmm. they're seeing what they perceive as a legal system that is counter in their estimation to what God would want and they mm-hmm. have the ability to vote yet they are not perhaps in the majority what are what are they to do with such a complicated like let's, let's just that one scenario what are because oh yeah when you, totally. when, you move, when you move into a book like this where you're actually saying hey there are not just things to talk about there are ways of living so w- what what then should we mm. do with this this chestnut
0: yeah totally no I I appreciate the question I welcome it. and I think you know you're the way that you ask it, I think, is is really, um, really important. And I think that is where I hope or I wish we would go more is is implicitly in how you're asking it, you're understanding how complex it is, right? This isn't an easy question. It's not one that is black or white, you know, easily answered when we're talking about how all of this comes together. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I, you know, I have strong viewpoints that I'll share in a little bit, but um how this plays out, I think, is, is really complex. Um, and I think, again, it's important that we're listening to voices outside of our group to really be able to understand and think about the implications of what we're doing and how we're doing it. Mm-hmm. So it isn't as though... so. Yeah, it, the complexity is really strong because I think the kind of pro-life, pro-choice, it's one or the other binary, I think is false. And, and everybody kind of knows it's false. But that doesn't play politically. Um, and politics is about getting people to pull the lever for you and not the other person. And so in my own, you know, growing up, there was a time where I voted for, a, as I was starting to vote, a presidential candidate. And it came down to the, the pro-life question. I just couldn't not pull the lever mm-hmm. for the politician that I felt like was was pro-life. But the way that I was thinking about it, how I was understanding what pro-life meant, all of that was defined politically and it meant really a very small slice of what pro-life is. Sure. So if pro-life only means no access to abortion, I think that is incredibly anemic and unchristian. and That is the way that it's been defined. And that is essentially the platform of a major party, political party in the US. And many, you know, white evangelical Christians like me, that is the way that it's viewed. Mm -hmm. So the way that it gets structured politically and in rhetoric is that if you aren't pro life, then you're pro abortion. And that's not true either, right? Right. The pro life, pro choice thing. Um, So here I am thinking, as again, this is part of my personal history growing up, when I see that. There are, there's empirical evidence for lowering the abortion rate um, in countries and limiting access to abortion can play a part, but it's actually really small. Um, but expanding access to healthcare and contraception, sex education, all of these things actually bring the abortion rate, empirically informed evidence of bringing the abortion rate down. So as a young Christian, or as I was on my journey, I'm thinking, okay, I'm pro-life, but we're not doing all these other things in addition to maybe limiting access to abortion. So why is that? And the answer to why is because of power and what that means. There's um, the way that our kind of political realities have been structured throughout our history are on purpose to ensure that certain groups maintain access to power and others don't. And so that was part of my awakening and hearing, you know, from you know minority women who have a much greater likelihood of dying in childbirth and their children have a higher rate of dying in the first year of life, um, Mm -hmm. saying that it isn't about, um, you know, not having access to abortion or not, but a pro-life, if we were pro-life, we would wanna be expanding healthcare access for them so that we didn't see, you know, the greater likelihood of, of their dying in childbirth or in the first year. And so I think that is where we have to, Um, as Christians, expand kind of the aperture of what we think some of these definitions are, these concepts are, um, to listen to other voices and ensure that um, there are people being crushed on the margins and going to them and hearing what that is. And then um, really trying to focus on, um, yeah, how we can support them. Um, and, And so with abortion, it's, yeah, incredibly complex. It has a history. But for me, when we identify pro-life as only limiting access to abortion, I think they don't think that's pro-life. And I don't see, you know, those groups that say they're pro-life pushing in areas um, that could actually also help lower abortion. If we were doing all that, I would take in good faith this desire to limit access to abortion. But when there's, you know, no conversation about expanding how else we can support life, <laughs> um I don't, I, you know, it's hard for me to take it in good faith. And I think that's where I've come to on my journey. And so I think Christian nationalism and, and in this book, trying to wrestle with that to think through what Jesus commanded and what we've been handed mm-hmm. um, and and seeing that we can work together to remake how this interacts that American Christians um, can find an, um, a new way um, to be about the work of, of what I say the gospel is and what, the communities that have informed me, you know, and what the gospel is. So, um, hopefully, that that hits a little bit on what you were asking. But uh, yeah, appreciate good. the question. Yeah,
1: that's good. It's it's the mega identity concern again. It's the idea that if if this, then this. Like you, you have right. to you have to like single single issue voters, right? I keep saying, in Canada, I'm a single yeah. issue voter. If you will do away with. Daylight Savings Time. I will vote for you. I don't care anything else on your policy <laughs> ticket. Just get rid yeah. of Daylight Savings Time. Okay? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's. I mean, it's it's complicated. Is kind of the, the bottom line. And and tweets are uh, notoriously uncomplicated things. They're just as they're kind of. But you know, when you drop 140 characters mm. in somebody's face, it's not good enough. It, it doesn't have much of a conversation. Uh, and so that's why I'm grateful to be able yeah, to have yeah. kind of this longer longer form conversation. And that's also why I'm grateful for this this book that's going to be coming out because it'll be a a longer form exposition of kind of what what you've been able to see and then when it's out there people will be able to agree with you they'll be able to disagree with you uh you'll have uh, lots of conversations about that but it'll definitely get people moving in a certain direction um how can people most easily kind of track along uh with you andrew
0: yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, so I am still on Twitter. I know Twitter is kind of a strange place these days, and who knows <laughs> kind of where that'll be by the time this goes public or in you know six months. But I am there, um, and also on Instagram and, and Facebook. So different social media places um, you can find me there. And yeah, yeah, just excited about the continued conversations around around this work and where we can go together. So appreciate the opportunity.
1: That's going to be good, yeah. So we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes so people can find you. And uh, in in, in August, uh, American Idolatry will be going live. So make sure you get your copy of uh, Five Iron Frenzy's latest and uh, Andrew White's latest as well. Yes, yes, definitely. (laughs) Thanks a lot for your time today, man. Appreciate it.